0: with Genesis 1 through 11 um yeah it's a problem if you say the, the original author or Paul they they were thinking it was literally true but they're wrong but the question is was that did they think that to begin with and again this goes back to you know this assumption that because Paul refers to Adam he must be thinking he's an historical person welcome everybody today we have a special
1: guest on he is an old testament scholar his name is joel anderson tell us what you're talking about and
0: uh, a little bit about yourself today um well uh today we'll be talking about uh i guess you could say how you understand genesis 1 through 3 or genesis 1 through 11 in general as for me apart from i currently am an adjunct instructor in religious studies uh at uh university of north alabama i basically do a lot of the biblical study courses um i've been doing that for about six or seven years before that i taught for 16 years at various christian high schools where i taught my undergraduate degree is in english literature so i taught english literature for a time but all my graduate degrees are in old testament new testament so in in christian high schools i taught a lot of uh, biblical stuff as well. Um, And that's been kind of my (laughs) my career. Um, Right. Right. From the beginning, back in the late 90s, when I got my first master's degree, I all my intention was not to teach in college, even though it's nice. Um, I always wanted to take what I learned at the graduate level and make it understandable uh, to either at the high school level or just common Christians who aren't going to take college courses on the Bible, because most, you know, a lot of Christians, um, and nothing against just the reality, um, they, they go to church, they listen to sermons, they might go to Sunday school, but that's the extent of their Bible knowledge, and it's not that great. Um, you know, I went to, a, I grew up in, in church, I went to a Christian high school, and when I went to my graduate program and learned about biblical studies, my first thought was like, why wasn't I taught some of this in my Bible classes in high school? Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 a it's a shame that so many Christians don't have a better grasp of uh, of the Bible. They know Sunday school stories, but they they don't have a good grasp of the Bible. And and given what we're going to be talking about, um, I think that's why guys like um, or organizations like Answers in Genesis and Ken Ham get traction is because they give really easy, simplistic answers. And so people who don't know any but better, a lot of them will go, oh, okay. And they go along with that, but they don't realize uh, the problems in uh, a lot of what the uh, Answers in Genesis says, basically. So so anyway, so um, that's a little bit about me. And oh, I a couple of years ago, like six years ago, I wrote a book called Heresy of Ham, which I kind of looked at the issue of the creation-evolution debate, um, and basically what's wrong with young-earth creationism, particularly the way they go about doing things. You know, my my position has always been, um, you know, if you believe in the earth is young, <clears throat> or if you believe that Genesis one through eleven is, is historical, okay, I don't agree with you, but that's it's not a major tenet of the Christian faith. You know, there's certain things people can disagree with. Um, but my problem is when they take that issue and they basically set it up as the be all end all of whether or not you're a good Christian. Um, and they've heard a lot of people. Um, and so I wrote the book to try to lay out very clearly what the issues are um, and kind of educate people on, you know, biblical studies, a little bit of church history regarding those early chapters and whatnot. So, yeah. Cool. Awesome. All right.
1: Uh, could you talk about... Uh what your your basic view of Genesis one to three is. And, you know, like, do you actually think it happens? Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, well, when it gets right down to it, uh, an easy answer would be, uh, no, I don't think Genesis one through eleven is meant to be understood as literal history. Um, But when I say that, I always people always assume that because you you've if you get in the creation evolution debate a lot of times it's presented as the only reason you're saying genesis 1 through 11 isn't history is because you want to push evolution um for me that's not the case for me long before i ever cared to look into the creation evolution scientific debate um back in the mid 90s after my first graduate program i um i did my you know i did a paper Uh, Actually, my first paper where I looked into this was was at Regent College when I I did a systematic theology paper for J.I. Packer. He's kind of a big name, um, name dropping, but I'm just name dropping there because I did (laughs) did the paper form. I didn't actually like systematic theology, but that's a whole different issue. But when I started researching and learning about Genesis 1 through 11 on my own, um, I just came to the conclusion on my own because my, again, my undergraduate degree was, literature. I know how to read literature. And I was convinced that Genesis 1 through 11 is not meant to be science or history. It's written in uh, the genre that we, you know, modern scholars would call the genre, the genre of myth, um, ancient Near Eastern mythology. Now, when every anytime you say that, that word. You know, people freak out over that word, so you have to be very clear what you mean by that. Um, in the ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, when they wrote about what they believed about their gods, what they believed about humanity and what they believed about the created order, you know, their their worldview, their meaning of how they understood everything, <clears throat> they didn't write history about it. they 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 wrote mythology. um and therefore, in ancient in the ancient Near Eastern mythological stuff, um you have stories about there's many gods they're crazy psychos basically they're not moral or good and they create human beings to be their slaves and human beings are just pieces of crap basically (laughs) um they're worthless you know and the and the created order is decaying flesh of a loser god and so those stories weren't meant to be taken historically those were like big picture worldview stories in the genre of myth to teach people how to view the world around they saw. And I became convinced that Genesis 1 through 11, coming from the Hebrews, from, you know, Israelites, it's written in that genre, meaning Genesis 1 through 11 is reflecting the Jewish Israelite worldview regarding one God, not many human beings are created in that God's Image and are good and well. They're they're made in God's image and they have worth and dignity. They're not slaves to the gods, and the created order is orderly and has purpose. So I'm, I've i am I was convinced that Genesis one through eleven is written in that genre to try to provide the proper worldview through which the Israelites could then judge their history that they see. Um, And so it's written in that genre, but then it subverts the very pagan worldview of the ancient Near East. I hope that makes sense. Um, So yeah, Um, but the the, the big thing is to understand when you say genre, you're just talking about a style of literature. And some people don't like the word myth. And if you don't like the word myth, what else? You could just think of it this way. The way the ancient Near Eastern people wrote about their beliefs, whatever you call that genre, the Israelites use that same genre to express their beliefs about the true God, okay um, the genre itself is just a genre. it's not neat you could have a um c s. Lewis said you could have a false myth or a true myth you know it's mm-hmm. a it's it's like parable. you don't think, oh is the parable true if a parable is true it's not dependent on whether or not it's historical the parable of the good samaritan is true because it's teaching something true about how god wants you to relate to other people but that doesn't mean there was a literal historical good samaritan that actually helped the guy by the side of the road it's a story it's a parable um so that's what i kind of you have to understand what that uh, that i that concept of a genre so right so you what
1: you're doing is you're taking other texts and that in that time period and you're like okay these people didn't think that they thought these specific genre of myth wasn't actually historical so therefore you know we can make the
0: reasonable conclusion that the the book of genesis wasn't mm. also is also the same category correct well i i would always specifically say genesis 1 through 11 because right. when right. you read genesis there's a definite <clears throat> break between 11 and 12 with a style Mm -hmm. of writing. So Genesis Mm -hmm. 1 through 11, plus the fact, again, without even considering of anything evolutionary, if you just look at writing style, given the ancient writings we have, um, whether it's uh, the Enuma Elish or all this other stuff that we have, when you compare that style of writing to what we find in Genesis 1 through 11, there's a lot of literary overlap. And so Mm -hmm. the way I always say, if you have a style of literature and, you know, it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. It's probably a duck in that genre, you know, mm. so. it and I, and I think when you look at that, um, look at it that way, uh, instead of obsessing of whether or not it's, it's historical, um, there's a lot more going on in Genesis one through eleven than uh, people realize because they're only focused on that one issue. And I've always said, theoretically, Could there have been, you know, I think we'll get into this a little bit. Could there have been a historical Adam and Eve? Well, okay, for the sake of argument, maybe. But if you're going to say it's historical, you should be able to point to something in the text that gives a historical framework. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you you go to anything anywhere else in the Old Testament, like um, the Exodus or the Gospels or the patriarchs of Abraham, there's stuff in the text that lends itself to, okay, this is real real history. Abraham went from this geographical location where we know that exists, and he went over here, and we know this exists. So it's set in real geography and history. Um, but when you get to, let's say, you know, Cain went to the land of Nod. We have no, I mean, it's just, there's nothing you can pin on. So you have to yeah, theoretically say, maybe there's some history behind it. But let's face it, we just don't have anything to to nail that down. But what we do have is that genre that um, was a common genre of the time. So that would make more sense to me.
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah, totally. So so we're talking about comparing it with these other texts, the other um, texts of the same genre. Can you talk more about specifically like why we can determine if these other texts were meant to be literal history, like you talked about, you know, they got some crazy stories, but okay, what's to say they didn't
0: believe it back then? Well, I think that it, it gets to where, and again, this is where you I mean, it is speculative. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to think our, were people 4000 years ago, did they really think that there was a giant sea god monster in the Mediterranean Sea? that the god Marduk slayed, you know, or whatever. The stories themselves are. not I have a hard time thinking people really thought of that in terms of historical, um, hmm. e- even in in um, in Genesis three, when you have, uh, you know, Adam and Eve eating from the fruit of the, the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And um, we have early church fathers like Origen saying, well, clearly this it's not a historical account it's symbolic you know um so again it it gets it gets down to it gets down to being familiar w- with genre and the style of writing um, and if you're unfamiliar with a style of writing you tend to impose on that writing a style that you you're familiar with um and and there that's why we have so much problem understanding genesis 1 through 11 here and also, you know, the Book of Revelation, a lot of people have the problem understanding the Book of Revelation, right? Because those are written in genres that we in the modern world aren't familiar with. And so because we in the modern world are post enlightenment, modern scientific minded, we tend to read everything that way. And it doesn't register in our heads that maybe there are people in different cultures and different times that didn't read everything the way we do. Um, and so again, it, but if you're familiar with the genre, it, it, it just becomes obvious, um, kind of a ludicrous, silly example I would give is let's like, like take TV shows and let's say the only thing you've ever watched on TV, the only thing you're familiar with is like the nightly news. And so you assume everything on TV is the nightly news. And then I turn the channel, and you get to something like The Daily Show, which there's a guy sitting at a desk in a suit. You are like, oh, this is news. And then this guy starts making ludicrous jokes. If you try to interpret The Daily Show as if it was a straight newscast, you're going to misinterpret it, even though it might look like it on the surface. Um, But if you understand what certain comedy shows are, you're able to recognize those tells and you don't interpret it like the nightly news, you, ter- you interpret it like comedy. Um, and it, it, the same the same goes for something like Genesis 1 through 11 or uh, the Book of Revelation. Once you understand the style of writing. It, it you realize, OK, this is not history. So.
1: Yeah, that's very fascinating. So uh, something I was also looking to recently was talking about the, the Canaanite war conquest and all that. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever passage that is, <laughs> um, uh, Joshua. Yeah. Joshua. Yeah. And, uh, there one, we have some texts, well, some verses in the Bible that say, Oh, like the whole entire country of this other country was destroyed. And then we look at other texts, other verses in the Bible, and they don't actually, they're not actually destroyed. So you have like some, uh, <clears throat> I'm sure you're thinking of the word. Um, I can't think of the word right now, mm-hmm. but, um, so I'm, like, I'm
0: gonna something. okay. I'm listening. I'm, I'm going to show you a book because it's a. I'm going to. I'm going to okay, do a book yeah. recommendation.
1: Nice. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, Good. Uh, but but I was just saying that like in those cases, and we know from other texts, um, other uh, historical documents that they didn't always take like those historical accounts of history mm-hmm. as literally true. I know that. But right. it's also a big jump to say that those those specific texts just didn't happen, obviously. Right.
0: Yeah. So, like, with well, let's just focus on the Book of Joshua and the conquest. Um, the book book re- uh, book suggestion I'll have is this is a really good history biblical history of Israel by Ian Proven. Mm-hmm. He's from Regent College and a few oh. others. But I just say Proven. Um, he tackles that very issue because there are some biblical scholars who go so far to say that there's nothing, hardly anything, in the Old Testament as a whole is really historical. Um, and and Proven basically is saying, no, you have to read the text correctly. They're presented, in, you know, the Joshua, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, their Exodus. It's presented as history, first of all. Now, the style of writing is an ancient style that we have to be familiar with. Um, and he likens it to. Uh, Portraits, um, not snapshot pictures, but what you read in in the actual Old Testament history books are like representational art of actual history. So if you see a portrait of Winston Churchill, you know, you could see, you could have four or five different painted portraits of Winston Churchill all in different situations, but you could always tell it's Winston Churchill, okay? It's the painter gives his own impression of the historical person. And so with the Old Testament texts, for example, the Joshua Conquest, it's clearly presenting a historical event where a group of former slaves left Egypt at some point, went into Canaan, battled with other Canaanite peoples, and eventually gained dominance in the region, okay? At the core, that's kind of what the story is about. Now, to present that in a single book, just like um, the example, I like to give is like a, a modern movie about a historical event. Let's take um, you remember Hacksaw Ridge from a couple of years ago.
1: <laughs> Definitely didn't yeah. watch that. No. Oh,
0: you didn't? you know what it is no. though?
1: Right? I don't. I, I could look. I could Google it. <laughs> okay. It's,
0: it's a Mel. It's a Mel Gibson movie about uh, World War II. Um, okay. it's a World War II movie about uh, a, a historical guy, private. His name is Private Doss. Um, he was a conscientious objector, but he wanted to serve in the army and he would not carry a gun. Um, and he was he was sent to. Uh, somewhere in Asia, one of the battles in Asia. Um, and he was a hero. He saved a whole bunch of lives that. So the movie is about a historical event about real people. But in the making of the movie, you know the producer Mel Gibson, the director. He occasionally maybe, you know, had to change a few historical things here and there to fit the context of a two two hour movie. Um, mm-hmm. He you know invented a little bit of dialogue to go into the movie, but just because he did did though that creative interpretation doesn't mean the movie's fiction. It's about a historical event, but it's creatively shaped to tell a story. Um, and so Proven basically argues he doesn't use that example, obviously because he wrote it before the movie. Um, but he basically argues that what we read in the Old Testament historical books is kind of like that. It's about history, but at the same time, there there it, there's creative shaping going on to the story. It's telling history in story format, if you want to think of it that way. And therefore, when you to get to the specific thing you you mentioned with the conquest, I say conquest in quotes because, you know, they weren't invading a s- nation state. They were moving into a land and they had battles, but it wasn't like a blitzkrieg into France. Um, on one hand, in Joshua, you have this hyperbolic language that then all the land was destroyed, you know, and they took all over the land. But at the same time, at the end of Joshua and at the beginning of Judges, it's clear that there are still some Canaanites in the land. And so some of the stuff, like the language of laying waste to the entire land, that's that's hyperbolic language, um, and you get that in other ancient writings when other like pharaohs or kings talk about conquering the land, they say the same kind of thing. You don't take that literally. <clears throat> you know, it's kind of like back when Muhammad Ali was Cassius Clay and he won the heavyweight title and defeated Sonny Liston. You know, he's like, I shook up the world. It's like he didn't literally shake up the world. It's a euphemism, meaning he conquered and defeated um, Sonny Listed. And so, again, when you read the actual historical books in the Old Testament, you still have to be a good reader of literature and understand how it's being written. Um, And so so, yeah, that's um, that's a kind of a long, long answer to your observation and question.
1: Cool. Awesome. I appreciate it. So, so
0: yeah, basically it's, it's history, yeah. but in story literary format, I mean, you have to, you have to be a good historian, but a good reader of literature at the same time to understand what's going on with yeah. the actual okay. historic books.
1: Yeah. So awesome. Um, so could you talk about how the genealogies would make any sense <clears throat> if, if you know, we have these long list genealogies, some even would say that that like proves the divinity of Christ in some way. But, if if the whole entire text of Genesis one to three or Genesis one to eleven like didn't actually happen, like we're talking about a big chunk of history that you're saying that just didn't happen. So how does that make any sense?
0: Well, it gets back to um, again when you ha- when you read those genealogies in Genesis one through eleven, you have to ask yourself what what how are they being used? What's the function of them? And again, when grow you know living in the modern world you know, having access to Ancestry.com stuff, we see genealogies and we first foremost think of genetics, biology, literally that way. Um, We we don't we can't fathom that in the ancient world, sometimes genealogies were used for different reasons. Um, And so in the case of Genesis 1 through 11, when you look at the literary structure of Genesis 1 through 11, because I, I argue that it's a complete literary unit in of itself. Every it Everything makes sense literarily when you look at it. Um, the easiest way to explain it, and I, then I'll touch upon the, the actual history question, but when you look at the genealogies in Genesis 1 through 11, <clears throat> the way they're set up, it it goes back to, let's start in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, God comes down, finds out what they did, And he curses the serpent, and he tells the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and the woman's offspring. He'll eventually crush your head, but you'll strike his heel. Now, ultimately, that gets fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the ultimate offspring of the woman, so to speak. Um, But in the Old Testament context, what does that mean? Offspring of the serpent? He doesn't mean there's going to be literal lizard people walking around. Obviously, it's it's metaphorical. But you see how that's the war between the offsprings, the way I put it, the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. This is what the genealogies in Genesis 1 through 11 are showing. So right after that, in Genesis 4, you have Cain and Abel. Cain gives in to the to sin and he kills Abel and then he goes off and we're given a genealogy and then abel because he's no more adam and eve have um seth um and another genealogy so what are they doing the genealogies are there to kind of trace the war of the offspring cain by virtue of giving in to sin and killing his brother he shows himself to be the offspring of the serpent okay um, and it goes, through, so it goes through Cain and Seth. You get to the flood, where, where God wipes everything out. Then after the flood, um, Noah gets drunk in his tent, and um, Ham comes in and does something bad, and he gets cursed. Sound familiar? Kind of like Cain. Um, and because Shem and Jephthah, Jephthah, um, they cover Noah's nakedness, kind of like God covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve. They're blessed. And then right after that, we have more genealogies. And when you look at the the genealogies there that stem from Ham, who proves himself to be the offspring of the serpent, and the other two, who are still part of the offspring of the woman, when you look into those genealogies at the end, you find out that all of Israel's enemies that come about in the rest of the Old Testament, Canaanites, Babylon, Sodom, Gomorrah, all those guys are in this genealogy through Ham, through Cain, whereas the Hebrews are found in Shem's genealogy. So literally, the genealogies are there to basically show that this war of the offspring is ultimately going to come down to God's people, the Hebrews, and other nations as well, OK? It's not trying to give an Ancestry.com literary, literally historical genealogy there. It's it's a it's a literary function of the unit to kind of highlight that God's people are the Hebrews, these other um, pagan nations are metaphorically the offspring of the serpent. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see that battle going on between God's people and the pagans. And then finally, when you get to the New Testament, um, that comes to a head in the person of Jesus and his followers. And then when you get to Revelation, uh, you have the dragon uh, pursuing the woman. And she gives birth to a child, Jesus. He's he is a, He ascends to heaven. And then the dragon turns to make war with the rest of her offspring, the church. And the dragon's offspring is the beast that comes out of the sea. Now, again, nobody's thinking that the beast is going to be a literal beast coming out of the sea. It's a metaphor to talk about the, in this case, the emperor who makes war with um, the the church. All that said is, going back to Genesis 1 through 11, the purpose of the genealogies is to highlight that battle. Okay, that's the purpose of it. So. I, be, because of that, I don't think it's meant to be strict. It's not meant to be literal history. Now, along with that, and this is a, a, an issue that often is often brought up with Answers in Genesis and others. When you get to the New Testament, and here's here's the, the big issue that you have to address. A lot of times, um, you know, Ken Hammond Answers in Genesis, will will point to various places in the New Testament where, you know, Paul or Jesus himself, or Peter, they make reference to something in Genesis one through eleven, and then they argue. Therefore, they're affirming that it's historical. I don't think you can say that. I, I mean, how can I put this? You cannot derive just just from the fact that that uh, Peter, for example, makes a reference to Noah's Ark and the flood in his letter. That he is saying i affirm the historicity of this um he's he's making reference to something in genesis 1 through 11 to make a theological point when when jesus references you know man will leave his parents and be united with his wife you know from genesis through 2 um he's ref, he's used he's referencing that part of Genesis 1 through 11 to address the, the Pharisees question about whether or not it's OK to, to divorce your wife. Um, he's he's addressing that issue. He's not saying, oh, by the way, I'm affirming the historicity of it. To be quite blunt, we don't know if he did or didn't. You can't say he didn't think it was historical, but you can not say he did. That's not the issue, and you cannot derive that Simply because they quote something from Genesis one through eleven, I think we need to keep ourselves to what the text is actually saying. Um, So, for example, when Paul references Adam in Romans five, you have to ask yourself what is he arguing in Romans five? And the ultimate thing he's arguing in Romans five is that, when you read the whole thing, humanity is sinful, but the work of Christ goes over and above that sin and transforms us to something better. He's not making a historical affirmation of the figure of Adam. He's using the figure of Adam to talk about the sinfulness of humanity. Whether or not he thought Adam was really historical, we don't know. And so I don't think we could jump to that assumption. I think we need to keep it to what he's actually saying.
1: Yeah, okay. So what would you say about the like specifically in Matthew and Luke, when they're speaking of genealogies, like.
0: Right. Um, Well, in that case, again, you have to look at, you know, Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. Um, Again, even in the New Testament, those two genealogies are doing something other than biology, if you know what I mean. Um, They're using those genealogies to make certain theological points. Um, Matthew's genealogy goes back to Abraham and it goes through the Davidic kings. The reason why he does that is because he is presenting because because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, primarily Jewish audience. That's why he quotes the Old Testament all the time. Um, The purpose of the genealogy is for him to show that Jesus is the is the true Messiah, the ultimate king of the Jews. That's why you go back to Abraham and that's why you go through the Davidic kings. When you go through Luke's genealogy, Luke's genealogy does not, it hits David and Solomon, but all the line of Davidic kings after that. No, I don't even think it, does it even hit Solomon? I went to David. But the point is, in Luke, he doesn't go through the Davidic kings and he goes all the way back to Adam. Now, some people say, well, Luke is going through, you know, Mary's line and Matthew is going through Joseph's line. When you look at the actual genealogies, you can't say that because both go through Joseph, but both genealogies have a different grandpas. Um, so if you're going to take those genealogies as strict historical records, you run into a problem really quick because they don't agree. There's no way you can get around that. But if you realize that both authors are constructing these genealogies to make different Christological theological points, I think it makes sense. Luke goes all the way back to Adam because Luke is writing to a Gentile audience and he wants to show that Jesus is the ultimate Lord of all humanity. That's why he goes back to Adam. Um, and when you look at the part of his genealogy from Adam to Abraham, basically he does what, what he does, he just takes the genealogy that is from Genesis 1 through 11. He just kind of copies and pastes and puts it on there to make that theological point. But... Um, so, so when I when I get asked this question uh specifically about those, the fact is if you insist that those genealogies are strictly historical, you run into a whole nother problem. These gene- genealogies don't agree with each other. And that that creates a whole nother problem. But um I think if you realize that these genealogies are doing theology and Christology, not biographical, literal ancestry, I think they make more sense. That's a lot to take in because most people just kind of assume, but when you actually look at them, there's there's other things going on in those genealogies. They're not concerned with, you know, Ancestry.com like we are. They're trying to say something about who Jesus is you mentioned um you know they're doing a little bit extra than just a
1: straight genealogy we we could definitely see that in matthew when they mentioned the 314s we have some people that are left out some people added um on that topic though i guess what i'm meant failing to failing to really understand maybe this is on my part is that you have you have a list of people and including adam and then um, I mean, I don't know what your your t- view on other people in the Old mm-hmm. Testament and the genealogies, but yeah. Adam and you know the the people of Genesis five. So, are you saying that Luke didn't actually think that they existed, or are you just saying that he didn't care, or how does that make any sense if you have a whole list of genealogies that you're trying to make a theological point based on if like they just didn't exist at all?
0: I'm 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 saying that. I'm saying that we don't know what he was thinking in his head when he did it, when he put that into his gospel. Well, we can tell when we study, when we look at Luke's genealogy, for example, we can understand the theological point he's making, that ultimately Jesus is Lord of humanity. That's why he does it. Um, but as far as did he think they were historical or not, I don't. Again, I don't think we are in a position to say what he was thinking when he put that into his gospel in that sense about that issue. He was making a theological point what he thought about it historically he didn't he didn't elaborate on. So it's we're speculating if we think he did or didn't. I, I since since I believe the Bible is inspired, I think we need to focus on what the author was Getting across, and stick to that. Um, and it's very easy to speculate on what he may or may not have thought about questions we have, but he doesn't address. So the again, the honest answer with Luke' use of G- Genesis one one through eleven genealogy is he doesn't elaborate on what he thinks about the histor- the actual historical question that we have in our heads. We can say he clearly puts that in there to show that Jesus is the Lord of all humanity. Um, But as far as did he think, I don't know, there's so many names in the genealogies in Genesis 1 through 11. You can't remember all of them. Did he believe they actually existed? Well, I don't know. We don't know. We don't know that question. Um, So. Yeah, I mean it, it's 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 a it's a it's an answer that we don't like to have because we want to figure everything out. Um, but there are some things that are not expressed and elaborated on in the Bible, and we need to be okay with it. It's it's very similar to, um, to again to go, let's go back to just the Genesis one question. You know, I I don't believe Genesis one is. A literal historical account. I think it's saying God created, but it's not given to the specifics. You know, then, you know, some people like some young earth creationists like, well, how did he do it? I don't know. <laughs> Evolution explains a lot of stuff, how, it, how life transpires over time, but the nuts and bolts of how it actually started, the Bible doesn't tell us, and we need to be okay with that. And the same thing, I think, with with the genealogies, we can strive to understand how the genealogies are used and what their theological point they're expressing. But beyond that, you know, we can't say.
1: Hmm. Doesn't that affect our view of inerrancy or does it? I think a lot of people are. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I would say like, oh, you know, if the idea of just not knowing something like that is, is, is definitely annoying, but also, (laughs) yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of attention there of like, okay, so you're talking about Jesus. Well, not even talking about Jesus, but like Luke, Paul, all these other Mm -hmm. people that they're mentioning, like, doesn't that affect inerrancy? Like if, if those people were wrong about it or it's because most people do think that, uh, people in the new Testament did think that, you know, these Genesis one to five people existed. But if they didn't exist, doesn't that affect inerrancy?
0: No, because I think, first of all, I think inerrancy is often a misunderstood thing. And when you look at the 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 history of where we got that term, um, basically the history is in the 19th century with the rise of modern science and the rise of modern historical biblical criticism. There were some starting to question whether the Bible was true at all. Okay. Um, and in response to that, um, that's actually in the late 1800s. That's when, for example, the Catholic Church came up with the official doctrine of papal infallibility. Um, the, the Catholic Church kind of felt, oh, the Bible's under attack. Therefore, whatever the Pope says is true. You know, they kind of, that's the infallibility part of the Pope. Protestants, obviously, they don't accept the Pope. So they came up with the, biblical infallibility or inerrancy. Now, when you look at the original fundamentalists, the, those in the early, ni- early 20th century, early 1900s, when they actually wrote the original pamphlets of the fundamentals, they come up with the, the idea of inerrancy. Um, and they say the Bible is true and without error in what it is teaching. That's, I believe, true. Whatever the Bible is teaching, I believe it's true without error. But what happened throughout the course of the 20th century with that group that later became known as the fundamentalists, who are a little more biblical literate, they took that term and they started to kind of mean, well, inerrancy means it has to be scientifically factual and true. And therefore, to an extreme, with like the Young Earth creationists, the Bible is inerrant, therefore, if it says that God created in six days, it must be a literal six days, because it must be science, because science is true. And they misunderstand inerrancy to mean scientific provability or you know historical truth. Um, but that's not what the original understanding of inerrancy was. The under, original understanding is whatever the author was trying to convey because he's inspired, the point he is making is true. Um, so therefore with genesis 1 through 11 um yeah it's a problem if you say if somehow we the the original author or paul they they were thinking it was literally true but they're wrong but the question is was that did they think that to begin with and again this goes back to you know this assumption that because paul refers to adam he must be thinking he's an historical person. But again, I don't think you can take it that far. Um, I think what you're doing is not you, but you know, in general, um, what you're doing is you're setting it up where biblical inerrancy must mean something's always historical or scientific. Um, not everything in the Bible is the same thing. I think the historical books convey real history and convey real inspired interpretations of that history. Uh, there are other books that aren't meant to be taken historically. Um, let's take, for example, uh, the Book of Job. The Book of Job is wisdom literature, which is not history. Um, I've, you know, when I've said that in the past, some people are like, oh, you're, you're saying the Bible's wrong. No, I'm just saying Job is not meant to be taken as history. It's true in the what it's conveying, but it's not conveying history. And so therefore, with Genesis 1 through 11, um, I'm not saying that Genesis 1 through 11 was originally thought to be history, but it's not. I don't think it was meant to be history in the first place. It's conveying something else, and it's true in what it's conveying, but it it's not in the historical category. So I don't think it that violates the idea of biblical inerrancy. Um, again, to take another example, going back to the parables. It'd be kind of like saying the Bible is an therefore there must have been a historical prodigal son, but that's it's a parable; it's not history. The truth of the parable, of the prodigal son, is not dependent on whether or not there was a historical guy. Um, so it's that same kind of thing. Um, yeah, I tend to blather yeah, okay. on, but it's interesting.
1: Go for it. Yeah, anytime. Uh, yeah. That's what that's what you're here for.
0: <laughs> to blather.
1: That's right. Uh, so to continue, um, so Answers in Genesis said this very interesting thing, like, thing that I read the other day. Yeah. It says, the biblical authors knew what mythology was. On numerous occasions, they clearly distinguish historical fact from mythology. First 1 Timothy 4.7 says, have nothing to do with inerrant, silly myths. Rather, train mm-hmm. yourselves for godliness. And then Second Peter 1.16 says, for we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we mm-hmm. were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It seems like these passages are saying that we shouldn't think the Bible is based on myths. What do you think?
0: With those passages, actually, when you you gave me that question ahead of time, and I kind of looked at a few things. Um, this is where we have to, again, make sure we understand the, the modern, when we in the modern world say, for example, when I say Genesis 1 is mythological literature, it, it, we're talking a, a genre, a style of writing that the ancients had. Um, when you look at first Timothy and second Peter, I don't think just, even though they still use the word myth there, they're not using that term as a genre category. They're using it as, you know, in first Timothy, for example, kind of a a generalized statement that, um, we in the modern world sometimes use myth as, as kind of a catch-all for meaning. Oh, it's not true. Right. Um, and so. What's a what's a good example we can? Well, yeah, just with anything, you are like, oh, that that's that's that what that person said over there. He's that's just a myth. That's just that's just wrong. I say that I'm not claiming I'm not making a talking about genre. I'm just basically it's a way we in the modern world say what that guy is saying is wrong. And so in First Timothy and Second Peter, um, he wants um, the Congress, you know, his. Well, Paul is telling Timothy, don't get caught up in silly arguments and silly old wives tales that divide people. Focus on being godly. Paul isn't making a statement about Genesis 1 through 11, so to speak. Um, Second Peter, for example, when it talks about we don't follow cleverly devised myths, a lot of scholars think that he's really addressing the gnostic stories that were cropping up in the late first century early second century that were truly bizarre if you know anything about early church heresies like gnosticism it's just flat out bizarre stuff um he's he's addressing that um so again it's all about reading the verses in their proper context um and therefore it those specifically those verses are not Talking about the issue of whether or not Genesis 1 through 11 is a certain kind of writing. Um, So, um, now at the same time, I would say in the early church and the New Testament writers in the early church, they obviously rejected like Greek and Roman mythology. They ridiculed it. But, and obviously they didn't believe it's true, but the, the source of their ridicule of that wasn't, oh, it wasn't historical. It was, look at how the Greeks and Romans depict reality. These gods that they worship are f- completely immoral. Um, they're really bad behavior, and that reflects the horrible world worldview that ancient Greek and Rome had. Um, in the same way, Genesis 1 through 11 is true, not because it's historical and they're not, It's true because it provides the proper worldview and understanding of who the true God is, who human beings are, and what is the purpose of his creation. Um, So that's, that's how I, I look at that stuff. So, yeah, (laughs) Uh, yeah. So, so let's talk about
1: uh, how the text of Genesis would have come about, because Mm -hmm. what you're saying is that if this text didn't happen, what my, get, my thought process is, okay, so if I randomly heard this story of, like, okay, God created the heavens and the earth or whatever, and that didn't actually happen, am I not going to say, like, oh, like, how are you going to be able to verify that that happened? Or, right. like, it seems like what you're saying is that these people, um, you know, the Jews, or mm-hmm. not the, the Israelites of the Israelites, time would have just said, yeah. oh, like, okay, I'll trust you. Like, right, where where does that whole come in, come in as far as, like, how they would have received that
0: um, well, as far as when Genesis one through eleven specifically was written or the the entire Torah you know Genesis to Deuteronomy um, you know we can't pinpoint exactly when it was written, but um where's my notes there they are um, generally speaking, uh, scholars believe that the Torah and the history books were put into their final form during the Babylonian exile. Okay, Um, now, again, scholars have different views on it. I think all the stories, obviously, all the historical stuff from the time of Abraham up to the time of the Babylonian exile, there were records and stuff that scribes during the Babylonian exile put together into the books we have. And I think that the same goes for Genesis to Deuteronomy. I think those stories and stuff, all that stuff was part of ancient israel but it was fashioned into its final form during the exile Um, now as far as genesis 1 through 11 is concerned it's 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 an interesting thing because on one hand when you compare genesis 1 through 11 with a lot of mesopotamian cultural stuff there's a lot of connections um and so and this is not I haven't researched this in the detail. I've always thought about this. I've always wondered. Um, well, let me back up. Another thing to realize is the stuff in Genesis 1 through 11, meaning uh, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the flood, the Tower of Babel, all those specific events in gen- that we find in Genesis 1 through 11, you go through from Genesis 12 all the way up to the exile, even even after that, there's not a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that mentions that stuff. Which is really interesting. You go throughout the prophets and the historical books, you'll find references to Abraham and the Exodus, but Genesis 1 through 11 is hardly ever mentioned outside of Genesis 1 through 11. It's like throughout the ancient Israel, they didn't, they never referenced it hardly. But it is the figures of Adam and the flood, um, in that sense they are mentioned a lot in during the intertestamental period after the return from exile. Oops, does that make sense so far? Yes? Yeah. yeah okay. totally. And so therefore, I sometimes wonder, and it's just speculation, that the text, whether or not the text of Genesis 1 through 11 was written during the exile as kind of a prologue to their history. Does that make sense? They have all the historical notes and stuff and the books that they compiled from the records. And I kind of wonder if Genesis 1 through 11 wasn't written during the exile. And that's why there are so many, I mean, the Tower of Babel. Where were they in the exile? Babel, (laughs) you know. Um, And I wonder if Genesis 1 through 11 wasn't written during the exile to combat the Babylonian Mesopotamian myths that they would have encountered when they went to exile. Um, And so. That's a possibility. You can't prove that, but um, therefore, I think it but it would make sense to me that the Jews in the exile, when confronted with these pagan mythologies and this pagan worldview of Babylon, it wouldn't surprise me if at that point a scribe or whoever it was, wrote in that genre as kind of a prologue to their history that combats the pagan worldview that you see in the pagan mythology um so that's what i think so for example let's just very easily genesis 1 the whole purpose of genesis 1 is that our god is the true creator not the pantheon of gods of babylonian mythology you know so it's addressing The claims of pagan mythology. Um, But obviously, obviously, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. We don't necessarily believe that he did it in a literal six days the way Genesis 1 described. We don't take that as a literal scientific account. Um, But it does fit with addressing the pagan mythological claims of how they claimed uh, the world came into being. That's my speculation about possibly when Genesis one through eleven was written. Um makes sense to me, but you can't prove it historically yeah. in that vein completely. But it would make sense. Um mm-hmm. but again, so therefore the, the purpose of writing it is to combat the wrong worldview of the pagans that is conveyed in that genre. So
1: yeah and there's definitely some there's definitely some scholarship that's like all for that you, yeah when you talk about like uh uh just as a text to combat the other other mm-hmm. um, creation myths during the time, right. like, you know, there's definitely some evidence for that. You know, the question is, of course, is like, when were they trying to combat them? And, you know, when yeah. was that written? It's, of course, a different question. Um, yeah. and,
0: and I would say, and the, the the very fact that we're told that Abraham comes from basically the Babylonian era, you know, um, mm-hmm. Ur of the Chaldeans. So it, it's possible these things were with them the whole time, I mean, He would have been familiar with it right um so again but we don't know for certain so Mm
1: -hmm. yeah uh but kind of on that Mm -hmm. so basically it sounds like what you're saying correct me if i'm wrong saying that you know these people were in exile they they had other texts but they you know they maybe they weren't exactly all put together yet and then they're they're Mm -hmm. put together and it's like oh well you know we're kind of missing something at the beginning here and this would be a good story to tell a good myth to tell to compare the other myths right and and are you are you saying that, that like and then you know you have like i don't know what a subscriber or whatever and he's like yeah okay let me let me go to tell everybody and give everyone the the details and and then the other people were just like oh okay that makes sense that must be it like and they never questioned like oh like this
0: happened or this didn't happen or what well i i think I would say if, if you were, and I, I say this a lot with, with the Genesis 1 through 11 part, if you were an ancient person, let's say you're an ancient Israelite, given that ancient culture, what you are confronted with, with the pagan myths, if you're given Genesis 1 through 11, for example, just Genesis 1, we'll just keep it simple. Um, your initial reaction is not going to be, "Whoa, is this literally how it happened? You know, Ancient people are not going to be asking our modern questions like that center on that the the big thing that the ancient israelites would have noticed in genesis 1 through 11 is oh there's only one god not many you know their questions and what they say in the text are from their culture they're not going to be asking our modern scientific questions we but we that's what we would ask because that's our modern scientific mentality you have to realize that the ancient people were not They were asking different questions when they were reading those chapters. Um, But um, what I was going to say, another big, I think, important thing to realize with Genesis 1 through 11 is when you look at the pagan myths, because the way they were told that the gods were important, that human beings were not important, um, that's why ancient pagan cultures didn't write histories. We don't have them. The ancient pagan cultures wrote myths about their gods, and they had the annals of their kings, the great deeds of their kings, because their kings descended from the gods. They're important; they need to be recorded, not human history as a whole, because humans are worthless. One of the things you see that is that we often overlook in Genesis one through eleven, specifically Genesis one is that the idea that humankind is made in God's image, that gives the basis, that I would say the theological basis, for writing history. And that's why the ancient Israel and the Jews, the Hebrews, took history so seriously, because human beings had dignity and worth. So when they write, compile all their stuff in the exile, in their final form that we have, all the historical stuff, They have to give a rationale as to why this is important, because in the pagan world, why would you care about people? (laughs) Genesis 1 through 11 sets out kind of sets up the stage, the rationale to take history seriously. Human beings have dignity and worth because we're created in God's image, but human beings, we sin and we screw up and we're in need of that true good God to come into history and save us. Therefore, we're going to tell you our history of that good God coming in to the realm of history to interact with us, to save us. So Genesis 1 through 11 sets that theological stage and gives the justification for understanding the importance of history. Um, But again, it's I don't think Genesis 1 through 11 is history itself. It's the way I put it in my, my book, Heresy of Ham, Genesis 1 through 11 sets the stage and puts the backdrop, like the back curtain, on which human history, the play of human history, goes goes forth. That makes sense. You know, Shakespeare says all the world's a stage and men are merely actors. Genesis 1 through 11 is the stage. and gives the worldview and rationale to understand human history that goes across the stage. Mm. Um, I think that just makes more sense to me. I don't get obsessed over whether or not Genesis 1 through 11 there's, maybe there is a historical route to it, but we, we don't know. And all our attempts to try to figure that out, you don't know. <laughs> but we do know that the theological background that it sets up so we can understand history. Um, like I've always said, if at some point some archaeology or some kind of scientific discovery, oh, wow, there really was a historical couple Adam and Eve, I would say, oh, great. I okay but that doesn't change the fact that the story we have is doing something else okay does that make sense mm, yeah. Kind of, yeah yeah so it's a, it's a proper understanding of, of all that stuff so